In June 2023, U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and Chinese Minister of Defense Li Shangfu both attended the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore. Austin had requested a meeting with Li, but Li rejected the offer, demonstrating the lack of military-to-military dialogue and communications at the highest levels between the United States and China. At the same time, there are increasing incidents in the air and at sea in which U.S. and Chinese military aircraft and naval vessels have come dangerously close to collision. As friction between the United States and China increase, how should both sides think about managing potential crises resulting from elevated military activities? Joining us for this discussion is Professor Dennis Wilder and Professor Xingqiang. Dennis is a professor and senior fellow for the Initiative for U.S.-China Dialogue on Global Issues at Georgetown University, where he previously served as the managing director. Prior to this, Dennis had served as a deputy assistant director for East Asia and the Pacific for the Central Intelligence Agency from 2015 to 2016. He also was the director for China, as well as special assistant to the president and senior director for East Asian Affairs at the National Security Council. Chang is the inaugural director of the Center for Taiwan Studies and deputy director of the Center for American Studies at Fudan University. He is currently a visiting fellow at the Paul Tsai China Center, Yale Law School, and conducting research on how to manage dynamics in the Taiwan Strait amid intensifying U.S.-China strategic competition. Dennis and Chang, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Bonnie. Great to be here. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. So the topic of our discussion today is dealing with potential crises resulting from elevated military activities. Dennis, let me start with you first. We know that the risk of an accidental or inadvertent collision between the U.S. and Chinese military is very real, particularly as both sides have been increasing military operations. We dealt with this in 2001 when a Chinese fighter jet collided with a U.S. EP-3 surveillance aircraft near Highland Island, and the Chinese pilot died. The U.S. aircraft was forced to make an emergency landing at Lingshui Military Air Base in Hainan. I know you were supporting the Bush administration then. How did this crisis unfold, and how did the United States deal with it? Oh, thanks, Bonnie. What you have to remember, this is April 2001. President Bush had been in office for a very short period of time, He had just really started to get an understanding of Washington. You remember that he had been governor of Texas and had absolutely no background in national security before he came to Washington. So his new team, which included Condoleezza Rice as national security advisor, Secretary of State Colin Powell, and Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld, were just getting to know each other. And suddenly they had the first crisis of the administration. What was interesting was that President Bush, after meeting with his three top advisors, decided that he would put the military in the background and place Colin Powell and diplomacy at the front of this crisis. And that is a very important thing and one of the lessons to be gained, I think, out of this crisis, which is that when you have a crisis of this sort, even if it starts with the military, I think you need to put the diplomats on front to do quiet diplomacy, and that's what Bush did. In fact, one of the things he immediately did, and I think this is important too, he stood down all reconnaissance activity, all military activity near China. I think that was important because it sent a signal immediately to the Chinese that we weren't going to escalate this crisis, that we wanted to find a way out. Now, we were very worried about the crew who had had to land on Hainan Island. There were some worries, to be frank, that the Chinese might take them hostage for a long period of time because the Chinese were blaming us for the incident. And so the top requirement on the US side was how do we get the crew home? And President Bush made that very clear to our ambassador in Beijing that the top priority and what he had to do was find a way to get the crew home. What happened is in the quiet diplomacy, the Chinese also sent very positive signals to us. For example, their rhetoric publicly was very muted. There was no attempt to stir up Chinese public opinion through social media. And the Chinese, even though they said they wanted a full apology, actually sent us signals 
very interesting signals that a sorry would be good enough, that we didn't need a formal apology from the United States. So even though the U.S. side stood its ground, believed then and still believes that the Chinese pilot was to blame, we found a way to make a very artful diplomatic letter to the Chinese side, which Ambassador Prior signed, that said, we were sorry for the death of the Chinese pilot. We were sorry for landing on the Chinese airfield without permission. And this resolved the crisis within 11 days, which I think you will agree is remarkable for an incident like this, where there was a loss of life. There was an American crew in a very precarious situation, having been taken if you will, prisoner by the People's Liberation Army, although they were treated extremely well on Hainan Island. Um, but it was a classic case of crisis management and uh, handled well by both Beijing and Washington. So there are some very positive lessons to learn here. And Dennis, if I could follow up on this, when the Bush administration was responding to China, was there consensus uh, among senior leaders in the U.S. government on what to do, or were there some divided views? If you read Donald Rumsfeld's memoirs, you will see that there was not consensus. Donald Rumsfeld was a very tough man. He tended to take very hardline positions. And had he been in charge, been given, if you will, primacy over this situation, he would have taken a much tougher line. He probably would have kept the reconnaissance flights going. He might have even mobilized more American military capability. You can see, because I don't want to be too harsh on this, but the president actually muted Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld was not allowed to speak, give press conferences during the 11 days of negotiations. It was only after the crew came home that the president gave Rumsfeld permission to do a press conference. If you review that press conference, you can see how hardline Rumsfeld was. He was outraged that a Chinese pilot had done this. I think he thought there might be deliberate provocation on the Chinese side. And so, no, there was no consensus. And I give George W. Bush great credit for having realized that Keeping the military out of the negotiations was probably the best. And putting Colin Powell, a very experienced military man in charge, but a diplomat in charge was the way to defuse, de-escalate the crisis situation. Great. Thank you. And that just showcases how difficult it is domestically, even within the United States, to deal with a crisis. And it, as you'd mentioned, that shows that leadership is absolutely important. Not only having diplomacy at the forefront, but just having leadership and making sure that the president is the one bringing the entire U.S. side together. Chen, let me turn to you. I know that Beijing disagreed with Washington on what caused the collision. I believe your side believes that the U.S. surveillance aircraft collided with the Chinese fighter jet. And on top of that, the other issue that China had to deal with was the loss of life of your pilot. From your perspective, how did China respond? The response from China has very uh, self-restrained and also um, cautious and prudent. I would like to add um, one point to Dennis about the uh, the context. It's true that when it is uh, the early period for G.W. Bush's presidency, but for China, it's still just two years after the uh, embassy bomb in Yugoslavia. And at that event, three Chinese, uh, innocent Chinese lost their lives. And so it's uh, still a very miserable memory for uh, all of the Chinese. So then we witnessed another event with the loss of a jet fighter of the PLA. And so I think you know, uh, one effect is uh, China think every life is precious and we need to find the last fighter pilot and um, conducted unprecedented uh, salvage and, and rescue operations in, in the South China Sea to try to find the last pilot. And on, at the same time, China has um, agreed and to conduct necessary diplomatic communications with American counterparts 
and try to you know, um, avoid further escalation and try to you know, um, deal with the, this issue uh, through uh, diplomatic ways and means. I think it also contributed to the final resolution of this event. On the other hand, I think, uh, of course, China is very angry uh, about the Americans' behaviors. But I think still China uh, agreed and allowed the U.S. Uh, diplomats to meet all of the crew members and also provide uh, humanitarian conditions and including allow the, uh, the crew members to call their family members to tell them, I'm okay, I'm safe here in China. And also, um, of course, at the same time, China requests uh, a formal apology from the United States and as well as compensation. And uh, furthermore, China think it's uh, such a collision. Uh, why it happened? Because of the closing uh, reconnaissance behaviors of Americans' aircraft. So we request United States to stop it. And But I think it, it's it's. I agree with Dennis and what he said. It's um, the both sides has shown the or send the signal that we must do something to prevent escalation and keep the smooth and successful diplomatic communications. And finally, and I think even though China is very unhappy and dissatisfied with the final resolution, uh, for example, we never get the formal apology from the U.S. And but I think it's uh, the mutual efforts from the two sides prevent the U.S.-China relations become uh, from derailing further and provide the basic condition for the further uh, improvement and cooperation between our two sides. Can I add just a footnote? Uh, because I think it's an important note in today's context. One of the things I found interesting, and I hadn't remembered, frankly, is that President Bush kept trying to call President Zhang during this crisis, and President Zhang did not take the phone calls. Similarly, the American military kept trying to use the hotline, and the Chinese military refused uh, to use the hotline. I think what we have to understand, and my Chinese colleagues have elevated my understanding of this, is that the Chinese side does not see these hotlines as the way to create a solution. We on the American side are very eager, very impatient, you might say, and want to use hotlines quickly. American presidents want to pick up the phone right away. They want to do the negotiations themselves. This is not the Chinese way. And today you're seeing it again where Americans keep saying, why won't the Chinese pick up the military hotline on the balloon issue? Why won't President Xi have a phone call with President Biden? And I think we just have to understand this is a very real cultural difference. And uh, I agree with Dennis. It's, uh, we have different political culture and different policymaking process, as well as uh, you know, different habits for practical operations. It, especially when some incidents or accidents happened or even during a crisis. So that's why I think the, the two sides need to you know, know each other and understand each other better in order to avoid any uh, misinterpretation or misunderstanding, and which will be essential for the uh, bilateral relations for us. Great, thank you. I, I did want to pull on the thread of Dennis, what you mentioned, and perhaps ask uh, Chang to comment on that first was how do we look at how we successfully dealt with a crisis in 2001 and bring that to present day? And in particular, um, as you look at what's happening now compared to all the different factors and variables at play 22 years ago, do you think each side is more or perhaps less prepared to deal with similar incidents in the South China Sea or in China's periphery? Chang, let me turn to you first and then Dennis. Okay, I think, you know, um, maybe in terms of the equipments, efficiency for talking to each other, uh, maybe we are better prepared than before. But in terms of mutual trust, especially the political uh, mutual trust is becoming worse. We all know that. It will hurt, even make the um, technical preparation or efficiency become you know, less effective and even meaningless. And uh, we all know that we have already established some fundamental 
and regular civilian and military uh, communication mechanism. But I, I doubt, uh, you know, um, whether they can still play a very important role. And they can play some role, but not so important for dealing with the crisis. And even worse, I we know that after Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, and all the major three uh, military communication channels had been uh, shut down, and I, I'm sure it will further weaken the communication during a potential crisis. And second, I think it's um, and the reason for, I think we are less prepared because of the, uh, the intensifying strategic competition between us and the strategic and political distrust between us reaching sort of a historical high. And uh, you guys think uh, China is trying to challenge the United States and China believe that the US is trying to contain China. But that means uh, um, uh, through this kind of vicious you know, lens, it will be very hard for both sides to make necessary compromise or consensus and to bring down the fever when a crisis triggered by an accident or incident. And also, I think uh, I, what worries me is the, the public opinions you know, and the, uh, the suspicions and, and even hostility between the two peoples is increasing, and um, the domestic pressure uh, will, from both sides will make the uh, diplomatic resolution more difficult instead of easier. Generally, I think we are even less prepared than 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and Chang, before I turn to Dennis, can I also ask you, so in 2001, you mentioned that that was two years after the accidental US bombing of your embassy in Yugoslavia. How did that factor into the Chinese leadership thinking about the EP3 incident? Or maybe it didn't because your leadership at that time wanted to, in many ways, deal with the EP3 incident as fast as possible. I'm just trying to understand how intense suspicion, as well as what you mentioned, mutual distrust, impacted Chinese thinking at that time. I think uh, after the uh, uh, the bombing of our embassy in Yugoslavia, it's a Chinese field kind of humiliation. And we think it's uh, evident hostile behaviors and provocative measures uh, against China. And I think most of the Chinese also believe in that. And we think that you know, uh, the U.S. is trying to target China instead of to view China as a Honor, and uh, also when the people saw three innocent Chinese lost their lives, you know, is that that kind of uh, anger or frustration is um, widespread in China, and also you know plant the rules for mutual distrust between our two states, and so I I should say that the, the incident happened in. Uh, in Hainan, played a role like adding fuel to the fire, and so it make China, you know, uh, at that time feel, oh, we cannot compromise with the United States. We will not allow that kind of humiliation to happen again, and we meet, need to be tougher against uh, uh, the, the U.S. So uh, I think that the kind of mentality or a sentiment uh, in, in China it really will, will impose its pressure upon the relevant diplomatic uh, policy-making process. Thank you. So that means like if, if in the present day, if we bring all these factors forward, if we have uh, significant intensifying competition, and as you mentioned, a growing mistrust between two sides, that means at least on the Chinese side, if not both sides, thinking about how the Chinese response has to be very strong, has to avoid humiliation, and has to address anger and frustration will be a key component of your potential reaction. Yes, I think it will be a very strong incentive and a driving force for relevant policymaking. I'm sure about that. So that's why I think we need to be careful. Dennis, already your, your thoughts on what factors have changed for the United States, and if you want to comment on anything on the Chinese side too. 
Sure. I would love to be able to disagree with Xinjiang and say, no, we're in a much better position. We've learned a lot in 22 years. We're much, we have much greater wisdom than we did then. I can't. Because if you look at things, the level of distrust, as Xinjiang just said, is much higher today. In 2001, if you look at the Pew polling results on China in the United States, over 50% of the American population had a favorable overall opinion of China. Today, it's down to 16%. So there is a tiny minority of Americans who trust China today. That sets up conditions with the U.S. Congress and the American president where any attempt at negotiation, any attempt at compromise with the Chinese side is going to meet with resistance. We have a situation in the United States today where we are demonizing the Chinese where uh, there is a great deal of feeling being generated in the Congress and elsewhere that Beijing cannot be trusted, that the Communist Party is an evil organization in many ways. And so my fear is that American diplomats and the American president would be boxed in by this kind of feeling among the American public that whereas President Bush had a lot of latitude in 2001 to find a diplomatic solution, as I said, it was an artful diplomatic solution. It didn't make the Chinese apologize, and we didn't feel we apologized. We came up with a golden mean. Did we agree? No. But we came up with something that allowed us to get the crew home, that eventually allowed us to get the aircraft home. I don't think we could get to the golden mean today easily. I think a crisis like this would drag out. And I would just point you to the balloon incident to see the kind of feelings that an incident with the Chinese would spark today. This great suspicion of Chinese motivations and Chinese behavior on the US side would mean that there would be an instant conclusion on the U.S. side that it had been China's fault. Whether or not it was, that would be the feeling on the American side, that somehow China had caused this problem, and particularly if there was a loss of American life. Thank you. And Dennis, you mentioned that right now it's your sense that on the U.S. side, there would be an instant conclusion that it was China's fault. But you also said that a crisis like this would drag out so you mentioned earlier that we spent 11 days dealing with the EP3 incident. As you look at a similar incident now, do you think 11 days is still feasible? Or when you mean dragging out, do you, are you talking weeks and months potentially? Oh, I'm talking months. I think that um, we would have great difficulty even sitting down together. I think that there would be, first of all, there would be you talked about a struggle within the administration. I think you would see a monumental struggle within the U.S. government over what to do. You would have Congress passing resolutions on this topic. You would have committees on Capitol Hill demanding that administration officials come up and explain the situation. And you would have a media today, even more so than 2001, that would stir the situation. We have so much social media today. We have so many people out there who instantly analyze these situations and tend to come to the most hyperbolic conclusions. All of that would create an atmosphere where, again, it would be very difficult on the diplomats. Secretary Blinken would be under pressure to come out in public and talk. One of the things that was so useful in 2001 was the ability to do quiet diplomacy, not have it in the glare of public opinion. Today, I'm not sure how possible that is. I would like to hope we could do that, but I don't know whether we could do that or not. Let me uh, further complicate the situation a bit, because I think in some ways what we've been talking about is actually relatively easier to deal with, despite all the challenges we just highlighted, right? Because we have been talking about a single, isolated, 
accidental collision resulting in, in a potential crisis. But it's possible that might not be the spark. It's also possible that given the very high levels of elevated activity, particularly what we've seen recently at major Chinese military exercises near Taiwan, we could see that and the U.S. actions as causing something that could be difficult for both sides, but also if you add in Taiwan, all three sides to deal with. Let me pose a hypothetical and and, uh, please don't fight the scenario. So what if the next spark of a crisis uh, between the United States and China begins with a large-scale Chinese military exercise near Taiwan, where similar to China's April exercise, China does not declare exercise zones, and hypothetically, the U.S. military was ordered to fly or sail near Taiwan as the exercise is ongoing. I wouldn't say that the U.S. uh, military operation is to uh, break the exercise because there are no exercise zones, declared zones. But what happens if during this U.S. military operation, we see a fatal collision between a U.S. and Chinese aircraft where we see a loss of life on both sides? So, Dennis, let me turn to you first. How would we? How would the United States even begin to deal with this situation? I think it would be extremely difficult if there was an American loss of life. First of all, unlike 2001, there would be an immediate desire to declare China at fault and to demand from the Chinese both an apology and an explanation. I think there would be the danger, frankly, of escalation on the U.S. side. More American forces poured into that area, more American military alerts, and a demand that the Chinese military stand down away from our forces. So it could escalate in very real terms. Instead of pulling back, You could see America doubling down in that situation in order to show that we were being tough. In fact, uh, I would not rule out an American tit-for-tat response if the belief was the Chinese had caused the incident. So I would see movement of forces. I would see, you know, an increase in alert of American forces, uh, more American power being moved into the zone maybe calling on our allies to join us in something, uh, Japan, for example, I'm afraid it would escalate very quickly into a real crisis, more like a Cuban Missile Crisis than an EP3 mini-crisis. It could escalate quite quickly, but you don't see, at least in the initial days, potentially initial weeks, that this would necessarily trigger a conflict. I think that if cool heads in the White House and in Zhongnan High were in charge, then I don't think it would go to full-blown conflict. My worry would be that military on both sides would take the momentum into their own hands to some degree, and then you could have a true military conflict. So I think, uh, as we were talking about with the EP3, It depends sort of which parts of the American bureaucracy kind of gets the lead. Uh, If diplomats get the lead, you have a much different reaction than military officers who are more inclined for very good reasons. They're not evil. They're simply trying to defend American interests and American, if you will, privileges in the area on international waters. And so I think there is the danger that if the American military was allowed to make the decisions, the escalation could come very quickly. So, Chan, let me turn to you. I'd love to get your thoughts on how you think China might respond. And maybe if you wanted to comment on, do you think it might be possible that if the United States had taken a very strong position, as Dennis had outlined, and ask that China provide an apology, provide, basically admit that it was at the wrong, would that be even close to possible? You know, I think it depends. You know, uh, if the scenario is um, in the accident happening in, in Taiwan Strait, and they are involving a loss of lives from both sides, 
Uh, I think um, China will ask for reciprocal treatment uh, on measures and from the United States. And it's very hard for China to make unilateral apology, and no matter what's the reason for that accident and something like that. So uh, diplomatically, I think China will ask for or request reciprocal concessions from both sides. And uh, I agree with Dennis that it's um, very hard uh, during the, the strategic context, you know, between our two sides and in the diplomatic the branch of offices uh, will have smaller voices and less, you know, influence comparing with their uh, military officers, and which means it's very easy to trigger the escalation and trap the uh, the two sides into a military conflict. In terms of how China would respond, I would like to say maybe we can divide it into two kinds of scenarios. And both are very difficult, and, but one is um, more difficult than another to deal with. First is if there's such a kind of exercise and it's a kind of uh, normal and regular military exercises conducted by the PLA, and um, because we know that the U.S. have uh, conducted many military accesses in South China Sea, East China Sea, and West Pacific, and a lot of phone-offs uh, operations, something like that. And so I think China also declared clearly that the, uh, from both sides of the Taiwan Strait, from mainland China and from Taiwan Island, you know, that there is territorial sea, contiguous area, and EEZ which means and China have the uh, jurisdiction upon the whole waters. And of course, it doesn't prevent the other Navy or Air Force to conduct innocent passage according to the international law. But if China, uh, mainland China conducted that kind of uh, regular uh, military access, and we see some accidents involving loss of lives from both sides happened, uh, I think that China will think it's a kind of a very irresponsible uh, for U.S. to fly or sail um, into these military exercises areas. It will make China, of course, very unhappy and um, very hard to deal with that. But worse still is if such a military exercises was triggered by some you know, very sensitive behaviors, for example, the pro-independence, uh, pro-Taiwan independence ventures uh, made by Chen Shui-bian during 2004. Then we know the PLA conducted large-scale military exercises to contain Taiwan independence momentum. And or if that kind of exercises happened after you know, the visit of Li Denghui's visit to to the United States in 1995, or Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan uh, last year. And I think the PLA will think it's a kind of incident or the, uh, the collision and reflect it on the uh, very hostile gesture from the U.S. as threatening uh, to the territorial integrity and sovereignty of China to challenge the one China principle and, and something like that. It will be regarded more than the former scenario as a kind of severe strategic, political, diplomatic, and military provocation, which will lead mainland China to react much tougher than the former one and, and also make it very or more difficult to reach any compromise. The worst scenario is it will completely destroy and derail the bilateral relations uh, between United States and China. So I think both are bad cases, um, but one is even worse. If I could follow up on uh, both cases, and particularly the second one, in that case in which, from the Chinese perspective, you're, you're engaging in a large-scale military exercise because of what you view as an activity from either the U.S. or Taiwan side that you oppose. And then the United States is sending an aircraft into your, your exercise to break it. You mentioned that China, it would be very hard for China to not escalate. So how I just wanted to make sure I understood how much do you think China could escalate 
I mean, we're we're not talking about this would be the trigger for a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, or, or are we? Just trying to understand what you're talking about in terms of the overall scale and scope of the potential Chinese response. You know, well, for China, if something happened, you know, it will not merely a military accident. It have much bigger and influential, you know, political meanings in that, and. As I said, it will be regarded as a provocation to the territorial integrity and sovereignty of China to promote Taiwan independence momentum and to interfere in the uh, unification course of the mainland China. And so it will be interpreted very differently. And that kind of different interpretation will, of course, lead to the mainland China to deal with it. Is with some very different ways, but I think the different ways will be a much tougher way, and much strong countermeasures will be conducted, especially when the U.S. also, as just Dennis just mentioned, will you know show some military readiness and force of military capabilities to, in order to you know uh, impose pressure upon China. That means China will. Maybe have no choice but to conduct a kind of tit for tat, you know, uh, action and a reaction to that kind of scenario. Because for us, the Taiwan issue, if we think it's a reflection of the U.S. interference and involvement, it will make China less room to you know withdraw or to reach kind of consensus with the United States. So when you say that the Chinese response might be more than just on the military side, but also political, economic, would this potentially rise to a level of China recalling your ambassador from the United States, or maybe perhaps not quite yet there? I guess the China's reaction will be tougher than that. Oh, tougher than that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and it's just a diplomatic posture. But if something I described happened, China will, you know, maybe conduct. Much more comprehensive and systematic measures to to deal with the United States, not only you know in terms of diplomatic ways. Dennis, let me also bring you in on this question. I know you studied China, how China acts. Do you have anything to add to how Chang described what is the likely possible Chinese reaction, or, or are there things that you would worry in addition to what he mentioned? I think that we need to take seriously. The idea that in this kind of scenario, you really have the makings of something very similar to the Cuban Missile Crisis, where both countries become galvanized and feel like they need to use every resource they have to tell the other side you're wrong, to tell the other side that they have to back down, and. So the danger is we could go eyeball to eyeball, with both leaders feeling that they have no room, that anything they do other than a tough response is endangering their own political position. I think that, frankly, Xi Jinping would have to worry about his own political position, because if he compromises on anything related to the Taiwan issue. The Chinese people, and this is very clear to me, the Chinese people feel this is a core issue that this goes right to the heart of China, and so I would see that Xi Jinping would have no choice but to make a very tough and, as was just said, a comprehensive response in a lot of different areas. Similarly, there would be calls on the American side for sanctions against China. For bringing our allies in, probably for trying to take this to the UN Security Council, much as we did during the Cuban Missile Crisis, perhaps trying to present evidence at the UN Security Council, you could see how this could escalate very clearly into not just a U.S.-China crisis, but rather a international crisis involving our allies. Maybe involving Russia because Russia would have to take a stance. You could see that the UN Security Council would very quickly be a center of activity 
and not necessarily positive activity. And so uh, I hate to paint such a dire picture, but I think in the current environment, we would be looking at a true international crisis. And Chang, do you want to weigh in anymore? I mean, one thing that, Dennis, you mentioned I thought was interesting was using the Cuban Missile Crisis to illustrate sort of the tensions. But one area that's not like the Cuban Missile Crisis is, at least so far, I haven't heard either you or Chang mention any nuclear development. And I hope so far, given this scenario, we wouldn't see any nuclear development. I think, you know, uh, we can make analogy between Cuban crisis or uh, uh, some crisis involving Taiwan issue. And it's uh, a thought-provoking for all of us, true. But I would like to say there are still some differences between Cuba and Taiwan issue. I don't think I'm the person that can stand for uh, for the U.S. But for China, or maybe we can say that for Soviet Union, it's okay for Soviet Union to withdraw from Cuba with the missiles. And so not to the core national interest, not to the vital concern of Soviet Union, but it's different for China involving the Taiwan issue. Taiwan issue, as I think President Xi and actually different generations of Chinese leaders have reiterated very clearly that the red line for U.S. and China relations. Additionally, Cuba is a sovereignty state, but Taiwan is a part of China. For us, it's an internal affairs which has been involved or interfered by foreign powers. So that means comparing with Soviet Union, China will have less room to make compromise and also have stronger incentives to deal with the issue strongly and toughly. I think that's very important and differences between the Cuba crisis or potential Taiwan crisis when we think about that analogy. Great. Thank you. I think in the interest of time, I'll pose one additional question and we'll probably need to wrap things up. So I do know that what we've discussed so far has painted a relatively uh, dangerous situation, but also a relatively pessimistic picture. And I do try to end my podcast on a more positive note. So for both of you, aside from reducing our respective military activities, which I think is not where either government is or what either government wants, do either of you have any recommendations for what either your government or both governments could do to make sure that if we do find ourselves in a situation, whether that's a single isolated incident of, of a collision or an incident where, you know, uh, the United States is intervening or trying to break up a Chinese military exercise. Or we could also think about the reverse situation where China is trying to break a U.S. military exercise, where we find ourselves in any of these situations caused by escalated military activities on both ends. Um, what could we do to try to get out of the situation and make sure the situation doesn't escalate? And Chang, let me turn to you first on this. I think, you know, it's, as President Biden and President Xi have reiterated, the logics apply to all of the uh, presidents and from our two states and apply to the bilateral relations that we need cooperation and we need to avoid the destruction of the bilateral relations, even though we have a lot of a disagreement. And so if we follow that, the doctrine, and in case a crisis happens, we first we need to make sure that if one the two sides really want to manage the crisis and to make the issue manageable, and the two sides need to send clear signals to each other that they want to you know resolve the issues mainly or basically by diplomatic approaches. And two sides can t- conduct direct communications and to discuss with each other, to express their anger and to talk about the ways out of the, uh, the crisis. And uh, so I think, you know, we should cherish those, you know, uh, two military channels. And that's why I think it's, it's 
good for the U.S. to get rid of the sanction upon our Secretary of Defense, and then to provide the opportunities and all the preconditions for the two sides can resume that kind of dialogues. And if before the crisis happened, we haven't such crisis, we, we don't have such kind of communications channels, how can we imagine we can have that one after a crisis broke out? And second, I think it may be more important is politically, if the two sides need to reassure each other that they want to control the escalation. Of course, the precondition is the crisis is controllable. Each political leaders need to let each other to believe that no one, no side want to disrupt the or blow the whole bilateral relations and even to trigger a conflict between us. And I think the it will be good if the two top leaders, they can pick up phones and to talk with each other. And I agree with Dennis, what he said, and have the, this kind of very immediate and direct communications to send the political reassurance signals to each other. It will be very important for the two sides to choose whether it's military approach or diplomatic approach to deal with this, this issue, the sooner the better. And I think we also need to politically need political you know, leadership to prevent the influence or the impact from the domestic politics or the, uh, the media, the public passion and, and something like that. That is, that is um, to let the, the capable officials or leaders to take charge of the whole issue instead of to follow even misled and kidnapped by some domestic political factors. Uh, but I uh, finally, I would like to say maybe more important is strategically, the two sides must reach a kind of basic consensus. That is, we... Both sides cannot afford another crisis. And so both sides need to be careful and cautious. The best way may be to prevent a crisis originated from an accident. Do not let us to have a physical collision. That, that's the best and maybe efficient way. And for us, I will say that the, uh, from China's perspective, all the kind of a collision or potential incident happened along our coast in the closing recognizes behaviors of conducted by U.S. Navy ships, naval ships or Air Force aircraft very close to our coastline. It's not happened in near Hawaii, Alaska, Los Angeles or New York. So I, I think China, of course, will be you know, uh, very concerned about that kind of potentiality of accident. and. Um, if the two sides continue this kind of game, and there is a saying in China that is, uh, you can't walk by the river without wet shoes. It means it's inevitable, almost inevitable, if we if such a behavior will continue for a long time. And also, I think that's why uh, you know the two sides need to avoid any you know, physical collision uh, from happening. And especially during some very sensitive time period, in some very sensitive areas, and also in some you know, uh, very sensitive locations or space. Of course, I, I, I think it's not very uh, easy to do for the both sides to do that. But uh, that will maybe the best way you know, to prevent some tragedy from happening. Thank you, Chang. I do think your military is starting to operate closer to us, to the United States. So perhaps we'll see more equivalence in, in the future. But Dennis, your thoughts? I'd add just a couple things. One is, I think what we've seen today should show us that it is very important to reestablish military and diplomatic channels at all levels within the Chinese and American system. The reason for that is you've got to build some trust in each other. You've got to get to know each other on a personal level 
so that when a crisis comes, when a situation comes like this, the participants, whether they are in Indo-Pacific Command or in the Office of the Secretary of Defense or the defense attaches in Beijing, if these people know each other, know their counterparts, there's much more chance that they can talk to each other in a meaningful way. I worry with the situation today that the first time these people will be talking to each other is in the middle of a crisis. That just doesn't work. That's a, a formula for disaster. So I think the restoration of true dialogue at a lot of different levels is very important. The second thing I would say is that I think what my Chinese colleague is saying that is very true is the level of activity we are now engaged in, both sides, out there in the South China Sea, in the Taiwan Strait, near Taiwan, has gotten to a point and a level that is just inherently dangerous. Things happen. Stuff happens in life. I have been associated with U.S.-China relations long enough to know that you cannot predict these things, but they happen. Bad things do happen. And what we have to understand about today is we're creating the circumstances by both countries' military activities that increase the chances for a mistake, a mishap. So one of the things we have to think about is, is there a way to lower the chances of that? Is there a way to reduce American reconnaissance activity? Is there a way to get China to see that stepping up air activity and naval activity around Taiwan has some inherent dangers to it? I think that has to be a conversation that happens between the two capitals. You know, we often talk on the American side of guardrails. I think there is a need to consider what kind of military guardrails we can put in place. The only other piece of advice I would give to an American government dealing with a crisis like this is message discipline. One of the problems we have on the American side is we have a lot of voices. We often have generals speaking out on their own. We often have American officials leaking their positions to the press. I think it would be critical in some sort of crisis at this point to try to get some message discipline so you don't have voices that confuse, frankly, the Chinese side about what the American position is. And I'll stop there. Well, thank you so much, Dennis, and thank you so much, Xingqiang. There was just so much to unpack. I, I feel like we could have discussed for at least another hour, but I wanted to end the podcast on the very, very insightful comments from both of you on sort of how to not only think about the escalation dynamics with elevated military incidents, but also how we could think about what both countries could do either individually or together to deal with the situation. And I do want to say that, Dennis, I hope we could, both sides could reduce their military activities, but it would have to be reciprocal. But perhaps a more realistic and more near-term politically feasible approach is to think about how do we deal with the communication channels and some of the other recommendations that both you and Xingqiang mentioned beyond the reduction of military activities. But thank you both very much for joining me. Thank you very much. My pleasure. It was a real pleasure. Thanks. Thanks.